I'm so glad you've joined us. My name is Sharon Feckety, the host of the Broken Road to Mental Health podcast. So we are all on this broken road together, everybody. We are under construction and we're going to go through this together. One of the reasons I decided to create this podcast was because the only way to normalize this conversation about mental health is continue to have it. So you will be hearing from some very special people on this podcast, people that have lost loved ones to suicide or overdose, uh, mental health professionals, people that are trudging the road through recovery right now as we speak, people that are on the other side and offering tips to all of us that are still under construction. Thank you for joining us. everybody and welcome to the Broken Road to Mental Health podcast show. Well, um, I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind. Isn't that a song? That I've decided to, um, the first Wednesday of every month, I am going to tackle a piece of mental health that I will share my own personal experience about and um, the way I was able to potentially overcome, whether that be depression or addiction or broken relationships, alcoholism, lots of things. I think there are lots of paths to take on this broken road and we are all under construction. So it'll be me one time a month, the first Wednesday of every month, and then we will have guests on the show to discuss their own experiences when it comes to the broken road to mental health. So there'll be professionals, there'll be personal stories and the like, but today we are going to talk about depression. So I wrote a chapter in my book called um, 21 Sober and Suicidal. And this is a pretty serious topic. So hopefully you have, um, taken that into consideration, you're going to hear some things today that, you know, are not, you know, real popular to have conversations about. But I do think it is necessary to have conversations like this in order to really break through the stigma that we are all experiencing in this world of mental health. And um, I believe that having radical, candid conversations calling it what it is will only allow others to share openly and that is really the goal right so other people feel comfortable talking about the things that keep us stuck so this chapter um, i'm going to include at the end of this episode um i don't remember what chapter it was but it's followed by tuesdays with ben and ben was my father's eap counselor that really, you know, he was a huge piece of, of saving my life. So I'm gonna just have a, a really transparent discussion with you. I'm locking into you, the listener, or whoever is watching. So we can connect and maybe learn from each other about how to navigate through depression. My experience with depression started only when I picked up that drink and that drug 
that is discussed in that book that's been mentioned a numerous amount of times, a numerous, that's a new word. So, um, and the interesting part about that is I, I really only experienced depression when I stopped doing drugs, when I stopped drinking alcohol. Saying that out loud today seems quite normal that that's what would happen because when left to my own devices in this brain of mine without alcohol and drugs, I did not feel good about myself. So of course I would continue to drink and drug. But I did not know that then. And I have learned so much even after releasing the book um, in August of 2019 that I never thought I would, I never thought that my whole story surrounding my depression would change as much as it has since August of 2019. So that's really what I wanna share with you today. So the story that I've told in many rooms of um, the 12 step program that I belong to was that I would stop drinking, I would become depressed and then I would become suicidal. And that was because I had a chemical imbalance in my body and I had low levels of serotonin and I needed medication to fix my brain because my brain was broken. And that is, that is actually not true. That was the story that I was told. And then I in turn told that to everybody else. So let me just share with you that my my depression um, started at 19, uh, when I can remember, because that was the first time, oh, 18. That was the first time I put down the drink or the drugs for any amount of time. And putting down that substance, you know, led to my depression. And when I was 19 and went to my second rehab and went into a halfway house, I mean, that depression really started to eat me up inside. And I remember being at this halfway house, feeling this depression. Um, everybody, you know, in a halfway house, well, if you don't know about being in a halfway house, which probably most of you don't, they expect you to do things like get up in the morning, same thing with the rehabs, and be a part of this community that is there, your peers. Um, you have to go to counseling. You have to, you know, clean. You have chores. Eventually, you go on and you, you get a job locally. I did not stick around long enough to get that job. I was mandated for three months and stayed for a month, but I remember um, the depression was so strong that I had to call my parents and ask them to, well, I begged them to pick me up. And they knew better, right? I'm sure because they had attended Family Anonymous and they understood about Al-Anon and they understood about enabling the addict, but I was depressed. I, I was having a really, really hard time um, just functioning. So when I went back to my parents' house, um, the blackout begins because from that moment until I was 21 years old, um, so after a big blackout moving to Detroit, Michigan and staying high and drunk from uh, that age until I came home at 21, uh, I did not draw a sober breath. So I did not have any time to feel depressed because I masked all of my feelings and all of my pain and all of my trauma with drugs and alcohol. So 
my first uh, six months of being home in my parents' house, my vivid memories of my depression were just in my room, not being able to get up, not being able to um, be a part of society, not wanting to be a part of society, thinking that there was actually something wrong with me mentally, um, that I had, not, and that something drastic had happened. I, for a, a while, I thought I had AIDS. I had read um, through my psychology book that I took some courses in in college and it had all these symptoms and I convinced myself that I had AIDS. Um, the depression brought me to such dark, dark, dark thoughts and places that I really did think that everybody around me would be better off without me. So as somebody that who's, I've been sober now 26 years, I have not, thank God, suffered from depression since I was 21. I am afraid of just that, just depression. That is the only thing that I truly do fear in life. Hurricanes, yes, now that I live in Tampa Bay. But I'm um, only really scared one time. Irma, that bitch. <laughs> but back to depression, it was um, just a, the scariest time of my life. You know, um, a lot of people talk about being depressed, depression, sadness, and there is no comparison. Ask anybody that has gone through a depression if, um, if they could compare it to sadness, they will immediately tell you it is 100% not the same. It's not the same as um, a broken relationship and being sad and being heartbroken. Sh certainly there are many forms of depression, but when you are clinically depressed, you think about dying a lot. And that is what I thought about a lot. I wanted to leave the earth in a very big way. And I was constantly um, thinking about how I was going to do that. So suicidal ideation, constant planning, how I was going to do it, thinking about how it was going to affect my family, my friends, um, mostly just my family, because I had really just damaged every relationship I'd ever had, any friendship I'd ever made um, because of my addiction. And uh, it was rough. So I remember a lot of people, including my family, you know, telling me the things, of course, they would tell me like, you need to get outside and you need to exercise and you need to feel the sun on your face. And maybe if you went back to school, you'd feel better or got a job or, you know, a lot of things that, um, of course, somebody who loves you would say, because they don't know that you have clinical depression. So it wasn't until I um, went to see this EAP counselor, my father's that I mentioned, Ben, when he asked me if I was having suicidal thoughts, that I said yes. And then that burden began to lift. So he had asked me that question. And then from there, I went to see a psychiatrist and I was put on 20 milligrams of Prozac. And I was monitored and I was going to talk therapy. I had the love of my family and I had a community within my 12-step recovery group. Although those first six months I, that I came home from Detroit, Michigan after being in a blackout for two plus years, I 
went to meetings, but I did not retain any information, nor did I retain any information that the TV was feeding me for those six months because it was such a fog. Um, I could not articulate any of my thoughts. I could verbalize what I was thinking. It was just a, a black hole. So when I heard that I was going to be able to take this pill that was going to lift my depression because I had this chemical imbalance and I had, you know, my brain was broken and low levels of serotonin. I was just like, yep, sounds about right. And, um, and I want to, I want to read something to you really quickly that um, really started this process of changing how I feel about that story, not only that was told to me, but that story that I told myself for many, many years. Um, and before I read this to you, I want to share that if anybody ever said something to me about, you know, medication or, or had an opinion about it, I really, I tore you a new one. I um, believed wholeheartedly that it was that Prozac and, and I'm sure it, it played a part. I don't doubt that at all but I just can't believe it took me this long to realize that, well, 25 years later, I haven't had to take anything. What, what's that about? You know, made me real curious, writing about it in this book, writing about the trauma that I had gone through. You know, when I wrote this book, I documented every single night that I came home after writing. Uh, I, I was awake at two, three in the morning every night. I was reliving my childhood trauma. I was reliving um, the blackout and going into Detroit, Michigan. I was reliving these horrible things that had happened to me. And I was like, how come, what's going on? Like, should I revisit all of this? Because I haven't talked about it for a long time. So what happened, I believe, is um, I'm going to, well, I'm just going to read this. Okay. So this book, um, Lost Connections by Johan Hari. I, I could not talk about it enough. I mean, if you've heard me share before, I'm so sorry you're hearing it again. I'm showing the viewers the book, Lost Connections by Johan Hari. I've listened to his audible book and it's still listening to it um, today when I maybe I'm doing a talk about mental health or depression or addiction or whatever it is. Um, you get right nine causes of depression and anxiety. You know, this book was, oh my God, it was like the start of this new journey that I, I went down. And this one part, um, Johan Hari says, you know, you don't have to think about your life when you're told and you believe that you have a broken brain, you know, a chemical imbalance that you're not like everybody else. Um, and you don't have to think about what anyone has ever done to you. It protects you in a way for a while. And um, it certainly hurts to believe a different story now. And that really, it really hit me so, <clears throat> excuse me, it hit me so hard because I, I've been defending that story for so long, you know? And today I, um, I am 100% convinced that the reason that I endured that depression was because of the trauma that I had um, experienced during my time away 
as my family calls it to this day. Um, and I, I wrote about some of it in my book. Of course I was going to be depressed. <laughs> like, of course I was going to be depressed. I was traumatized. I'm now home in my parents, in my bedroom that I grew up in. I'm 21 years old. I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. I have two years that I don't remember. Um, horrible things happened to me while I was gone. I was homeless. I was addicted. I was cold. You ever been to Michigan? It's cold. There were huge traumas that happened to me. And now I'm home and I just have to like reinsert myself back into life. No, 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 no. It was a fragile, fragile time. Everybody around me was. We interrupt this awesome podcast to tell you about our sponsor, Thai Technology. They are a voice over IP phone company with superior voice services to businesses across the United States. So get this, Thai Technology only takes on referral customers. What does that mean? Their entire client roster is filled with satisfied customers. So why do I love them so much? Because they're the very best when it comes to excellence in customer services. So they're local here in Tampa Bay, but that doesn't mean that they can't service your amazing organization. If you mention this podcast to Thai Technology, you will get the first three months for free. So don't forget to mention the broken road to mental health in life and in business. Thanks for listening. I was just happy I was home. I was just happy I was home. And I was certainly happy that I was, you know, revisiting life again. And that 20 milligrams of Prozac, I believe was exactly what I needed at the time. And I do believe that Ben and my psychiatrist and, and all the other forms of help that I had were the, the reason that I was able to climb out of that depression. It was uh, definitely a higher source. I, I talk about a crane picking me up and, and dropping me off um, in places that I need to be. But it really, really hurt me to start believing a different story. And that's what I want to talk about today. The, the thing that has happened, I feel like working in the medical industry for a long time and just seeing a lot of, a lot of things when it comes to prescriptions that I'm really not a fan of, um, a, a, a pill being the answer to everything. Um, and that's not to say that I, I know that there's a place for it. So please don't give me shit. Just saying. Like there are no studies that represent this story that we have been told about serotonin. You know, um, and it's not just Johan Hari. So Johan Hari is an author and he was somebody that was on medication for 12 years of his life and was still dealing with depression. I, I can't, I have countless people that have been in my life that have been on different medications or one medication their entire life. They go off of it and that's it. There has to be something else. And for me, cause I'm only speaking about myself. For me, it was, I can certainly pinpoint it today on that trauma. And um, now being sober and being in recovery for so long and 
I, I live in the solution. I was, I'm, you know, I go to big book studies. If anybody's familiar with that, my um, recovery program, I've lived in the solution for a very long time, which was perfect. It's perfect, perfect, perfect for me to live in a solution. So I never have to talk about that trauma. I remember going to see a therapist when I was probably eight or nine years sober. And I went to see her because of a relationship issue. And she asked me, she said, I'm going to need some background about you before we dive into this. And I told her everything about my life. And then she stopped me and she said, you just said that like you were reading a grocery list. And she knew that I was traumatized, but you know, just keep on going, just keep on going, just keep on showing up, just get a better job, just get a bigger job, just act out in a relationship, act out in a job, act out over here and never deal with it. So, my goodness, I sure did pretty good for somebody that had um, pushed a lot of stuff that had happened to me down. Um, I did, of course, talk about some of it to um, my sponsor um, once, and um, just not something that is encouraged to relive. You know, we write about it. You know, we talk about some of the stuff we've gone through, through the steps, we release it, we let it go. We work on our amends, we give back, we do for others. But the depression was, um, was just, it was just fat. It's always been so fascinating to me because I've never been able to understand how I have been able to live depression free and be sober. Like it's, anyway, I don't want to go off on a tangent about that. I want to tell you that I believe that the work that I've done on myself, of course, has led to the life that I live today. It is a lot of work to not go back to using and to a depression. Um, and it's the reason that I, I do a lot of the things that I do today. Right. I, get, I say this all the time. So if you've heard this before, I'm so sorry, but I get up Monday through Friday. I get up between five and 6 a.m. I say that because it used to be 5 a.m. I've given myself a little break through the pandemic. Sometimes I get up at 530 and I work out and then I meditate and then we walk our dog and then I have coffee and it's organic and it's bulletproof. And I have this nutrition plan that I follow most of the time. I don't smoke. I sometimes indulge in Tic Tacs. But my life is very disciplined and, um, and I have, and a lot of that is, you know, been a lot of just running away from dealing with some of the things that I went through. So I do not think, as I self-diagnose myself, I do not think um, if I had to talk about myself in the beginning of my sobriety, it would have it gone well because I think it was so traumatizing that my, you know, my, your brain will just keep you safe. It will do whatever it has to do to keep you safe. But there is nothing like that experience of depression. And if you have never experienced, there's actually no way you could really understand it in my opinion. Um, many things have been said to people I love, to people that, have lost the battle and uh, died by suicide and, and letters that they have written, you know, that 
they just couldn't, they just couldn't see a way out. They couldn't see another way out. I've said this so many times that I understand why people take their lives. It is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yes, indeed. But I've always been able to empathize with that because the pain of thinking that you're never going to feel good again and there's no light at the end of the tunnel is um, debilitating. And I don't envy anybody that is going through that today. And um, my dog is sitting behind me, it's adorable. He's gonna, I think he knows when I'm talking about depression, he gets closer. I highly recommend getting an animal, a dog maybe, if you are suffering. But um, getting back, I, I just want to be able to encourage you if you are suffering to ask for help, to tell someone you trust, tell someone you love, um, reach out, get a therapist, check out NAMI, check out Celebrate Recovery, a 12-step program. They're all anonymous. Uh, today you can join them by Zoom. You know, um, there's so many things that we can do today. Listen to a podcast. I mentioned this book, Lost Connections, because it helped me so much. I also love the book, Hilarious World of Depression. There's also a podcast called The Hilarious World of Depression. This, the podcast came before the book. And it's all comedians that you know, talk about their depression and how they've managed it and how they've gotten through. Um, and you know, comedians certainly, as you know, have um, a lot of them have battled and lost their lives due to suicide. So there's a lot to be said about the strong ones. We all need to check on our strong friends the ones that take care of everybody else, but don't ask for help themselves. Um, it's a very hard, shameful thing, depression, um, which I hope one day it won't be. This, these mental health issues that we go through are, are not our fault. Um, it's, I don't believe it is chemical imbalance. I do believe there's some imbalance happening, yes. Um, and certainly for other um, mental illnesses that I am ill-equipped to speak of. That's why I'll only speak about what I've been through myself. Um, yeah, I, I've thought so much lately about the families that deal with somebody that is suffering from depression or anxiety or whatever it is. And if only the family would reach out and get their own help. It would certainly help the person that is suffering because the more we understand what somebody's going through, the better equipped we are to handle and to say certain things or to not say certain things that could really um, upset somebody that is struggling. There's many, you know, my brother and I um, did the podcast last week and he mentioned that he too, years ago, um, would look at somebody without this understanding that he has today that was depressed and be like, come on, man, just snap out of it. Look at, look at everything that you have going for you. It has nothing to do with what people have going for them. It is, um, it is a mental illness and there is help and there is hope. And a lot of it comes down to community, which is discussed a lot in this Lost Connections book. Um, 
because community really was what, you know, between um, my therapist and um, my 12-step recovery group, I, mean, I couldn't have done it without other people. You can't do this by yourself. Um, depression will, will tell you that you need to stay in your room, isolated. Depression will help you cancel every event you've ever been invited to. Depression will let you say you're going to show up somewhere, but you're not showing up and you're going to lie about why you're not showing up. You know, I understand it. I can recognize depression in, in a lot of people. Um, and a lot of people just don't understand it. And I think it's time today, um, especially what we've all been through as a world um, with this pandemic and, and more, it's been a, a really, really tough, tough time for everybody. It's continued on to 2021. Every uh, mental health professional that I work with today is overwhelmed because this uh, mental health uh, crisis is alive and well, and it's not gonna go away anytime soon. But I do think that if we are willing to have conversations such as these, share our experiences with others, share our vulnerability. It is never easy or fun for me to talk about my depression in the days that I was planning my own suicide. It's, it does not make me feel good to say any of those things. But I know that when somebody else hears that they're not alone, it's a huge relief. So I'm sure when I hear somebody in a 12-step recovery meeting share about their um, depression or anxiety to pull them aside and let them know, well, today it's via Zoom, um, that I know what it's like. And I think that, well, I know that Bill Wilson, who is the founder of the program that I belong to, suffered from depression as well. And a lot of people that have addiction issues suffer from depression. And, um, and I think that we should just have more opportunities to chat about it like this. So I'm gonna recommend uh, you today, whoever's listening, whoever's watching, to, um, to ask somebody the question if you're afraid that they are going down a path of suicide, that you ask them if they're having suicidal thoughts. Um, because asking that question was definitely what saved my life. And it is a great freedom to be able to share that with somebody else because that usually means that there's help waiting just around the corner. But we have to get to that place where we're willing to open up and be vulnerable. So be kind to others. We never know what they're going through. Um, depression is certainly uh, a, a, an illness that you can recover from. I believe I am recovered from depression, but I will continue to live my life the way that I am today so I never have to go back. Um, if you've lost somebody to suicide, if you have a family member that is struggling, please don't go through this alone. Please reach out for help. Please ask somebody for help. Please tell someone you're struggling. Or if you know somebody that has gone through this experience, don't think that it ever goes away. They never stop thinking about their child, their sister, their brother, their uncle, their aunt that died by suicide or overdosed. So reach out to them, call them, call them, and just ask how they're doing. 
and talk about that person that they've lost. The memory needs to live on forever, right? Um, one of the things that we hear the most when somebody dies by suicide is I had no idea. I had no idea he or she was even struggling because we mask it. That's what we do when we're suffering from depression or we have suicidal thoughts. We, we don't want you to know because we, we want to leave. We want to, you know, take the out train and stop being such a burden to you. Please stop yourself from saying that this is a selfish act, that suicide is a selfish act. I really wanted to leave because I felt like a burden. So I'm talking from personal experience and I've heard this many, many times from many, many friends through the years. We always feel like a burden. We also think it's never gonna go away. So we think that us being gone is the only solution. I promise you, the only thing that kept me here was the people that love me. And, um, and I'll spend the rest of my days um, living this life like it could be my last day because I realize what a miracle it is that I am still here with you all um, and able to even have this conversation. So please reach out. We'll have some of the information, some contact numbers for you, dial 211. If you are suicidal, if you're having issues, crisis, financial problems, whatever it is, there is always help. There is always help. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Chapter 5, 21, Sober and Suicidal. I was going to meetings and feeling withdrawn. I slept a lot and didn't want to leave my mother's side. I was like a child again who needed her mother, and thank God she was there. Dad was so very supportive too, but I felt safe in my mom's arms because I knew she was carried many times in her life too. I realized that when we watched Oprah together after school and after General Hospital. When mom cried watching Oprah, I know she too experienced trauma in her life. And we didn't need to talk about it. We were just together. That was enough and was certainly the reason why I needed to be held by her again like I was a child. I knew she understood without saying a word. I started going into a dark place again, and I didn't know what was happening. I was home, sober, safe, going to meetings, and I was incredibly sad. I had so much time on my hands to think. I thought about all the years I lost. All my friends were graduating college and starting their lives, and I was starting mine over again. I felt different. I was going to meetings where everyone was so much older. I envisioned a bleak existence ahead. The feelings were hauntingly familiar, and I began to sink back into a depression. I was offered the opportunity to go back to college, this time a private business school called Briarcliff. Mom and Dad said I could go at night because they knew I didn't want to be around people my age. I didn't want to explain the gaps in my life to anyone. I took some classes, and I had an incredibly hard time retaining any information. There was no stress or expectations since my parents made it perfectly clear that I needed to go easy on myself. I did it as long as I could and then asked to take a break for a while. I didn't realize at that time that my depression was about to take over. I actually just thought I was stupid, losing my mind again. Maybe it was all the drugs and alcohol I consumed. I started to believe my brain was severely affected. 
I could no longer process thoughts and verbalize them intelligently. I stopped going to college and spent the majority of my time sleeping and watching television. Sobriety was not getting easier. Instead, it was mentally debilitating. I was going into a very dark place. I didn't know exactly what was happening, but it certainly felt familiar. I slept for endless hours, and the very thought of getting out of bed was exhausting. I was numb. I did not feel sadness, happiness, or loneliness. I felt nothing. The television was on all the time, but I never knew or cared what show was airing. I absolutely needed my television because it was all I had to drown out the horrible noise in my mind. It was my only connection to some sense of normalcy. If my parents came in to check on me, I would appear engaged in the show. I remember hoping they wouldn't ask me what it was about because I never knew. To this day, I don't allow myself to watch a lot of TV. It reminds me of those dark days. Members of my 12-step program were still picking me up and taking me to meetings. I would have preferred to stay home, but those people were pretty damn persistent. It didn't seem to matter to them that I didn't speak. They just wanted me to keep coming back. I think my parents were simply grateful I was home and assumed I would eventually get back to myself. They certainly didn't make me feel bad about spending all of my time in my room and watching television. Everyone was walking on eggshells around me, probably because I looked like a zombie and I had no emotions. I remember feeling literal fear if I heard the doorbell and voices that weren't my family. I was terrified that they would want me to come downstairs and interact with another human. It happened once in a while, but I would typically tell them I didn't feel good. While this was true, it had nothing to do with my physical health. These were very, very dark times. I was disappointed every day that my eyes opened. Every time someone would mention a future event, I vividly recall thinking, I'm not going to be there to see it anyway. I believed I would be dead. I wanted to die. I didn't see any way out of this hell in my mind. There was no hope, no light at the end of the tunnel. Before I went to sleep some nights, I believed this feeling would be gone in the morning. I didn't think it was possible to feel this way every single day. It was like a never-ending bad dream. I would wake up with the same feelings of hopelessness day after day after day. I was 21 years old, sober, and suicidal. I was finally legal, able to drink, but could never drink again. I had absolutely no escape from my mind and was forced to live inside this mental prison daily. There was only one thing going for me. I had no desire to drink or drug to this very day. That compulsion has been lifted and has never returned. I knew it was literally dangerous for me to safely drink again because I never knew where I would end up. That was a fact that had been proven. I have an allergy to alcohol, and I admitted defeat completely. I mentioned in an earlier chapter that I have a very large family. This extension of Ireland was on display for everyone to see at our very own picture gallery in our house. If mom ran out of frames when someone mailed another baby photo of yet another cousin, she simply leaned it up against the last one. Sometimes they ended up on the refrigerator with a big old magnet, and literally everyone was on display. Pictures of my brothers and I were everywhere. All of our school photos, team photos, Santa pictures, 
and Christmas parties at 6 Lawrence Street were scattered all around our house. I found it very painful to see these pictures because I could not connect to that girl anywhere. She was gone, and it was excruciating to see that she was once a very happy young lady. I didn't know how to get back to her, and I desperately tried. The thoughts of committing suicide were strong now, and I began considering how I was going to do it. I started hiding those photos of myself because I believed somehow it would ease some of the pain when I was gone. I realize today this was a ridiculous thought, but dare I mention now how crazy it is when someone claims that the act of suicide is selfish? I absolutely know today that I did not kill myself because I couldn't bear the pain my family would go through. The mere thoughts of my parents and brothers grieving my death were unbearable, though I honestly believed every single one of them would be better off without me. I felt like a terrible burden. I know many people that have suffered from depression and that still struggle today feel the same way. Because of that, I completely empathize with the inability to believe it could ever get better. And I understand why people end their lives. Depression is an insidious disease similar to addiction, but worse in my opinion. It takes over your mind and speaks to you in the most horrendous ways. I practiced throwing myself down the basement stairs. There was a beam at the end of the first landing that I thought would do the trick. The only other possibility in my mind was to actually jump in front of the train. I didn't want to touch a gun. I'd never even held one. and still have a healthy fear of them even today, so that was off the table. Pills didn't work last time, although I'm sure if I took something stronger than Tylenol PM, it might have worked. YouTube and Google didn't exist at the time to offer creative ideas, so those were my choices. Obsessive thoughts of how and when began to plague me every day as the pain got worse. Mom and Dad would consistently check on me and mention that maybe I should go outside and get some fresh air. They would tell me that exercise would make me feel better and I should go for a walk. They wanted me to open the blinds, let some sunlight in, but I preferred the darkness. Those suggestions only made me feel worse. The darker, the better, and the thought of sunlight or exercise were so far removed from my vortex. I hated myself, and I wanted to disappear. They didn't know. How could they? I never told them. It is common to hear people say today, I never suspected anything was wrong, that they never told me after someone takes their own life. We don't want you to know. We just want to die. If you ask how we're doing, more often than not, we will say we're fine. Change the subject. The objective is to keep the focus off of us so you don't try to stop us. We don't want to hurt you more than we already have, so we become experts at these distraction techniques. I can empathize with people at why they think it's selfish. I really can. But I hope this sheds a little light about how our brain has been hijacked. We're completely consumed in self-loathing, self-sabotage, and self-hatred. Please don't stop asking if we're okay. We need you to intrude and encourage us with a safe place to share our thoughts with no judgment. I don't recall how it came up, but I must have said yes when asked if I wanted to speak to a professional at that time in my life. 
I had been through my share of inpatient and outpatient therapists, and I was beginning to think it just didn't work. My dad suggested that I have a consult with his EAP counselor, Ben Figueres. I remember him telling me that he was a really nice guy and helpful to him when I was away. Away was how we all referred to my time in Michigan. I believe that term is still holding strong to describe my blackout years in Detroit. Dad worked at New York Hospital, so that meant I needed to commute into the city from Long Island. I know we went together the first time so he could show me the route. I actually don't know how he convinced me to do this, considering how I was recently thinking about trains. I do remember watching them intently that day, and it solidified I would never have the courage to follow through with that act. I was on my way to hope. Business Life Parallel Today, businesses are finally taking steps to encourage outlets for employees suffering from mental health issues. If it wasn't for my father's EAP counselor, I might not be here today. If I weren't sober, I would not have known what to do when an employee suffered from addiction and mental health issues. The 12-step recovery program I belong to has a chapter outlined in the study book called Two Employers. I was the boss for many years prior to opening my business and used these tools many times when faced with employees experiencing these mental health issues. Recovery has taught me empathy, and I rely on my EQ to handle the toughest situations. Legislation recently passed when a patient communicates a specific threat against an identifiable individual in Florida to a mental health service provider, including a psychiatrist, the provider must notify law enforcement the potential threat. Business tip, employers, get informed. Don't forget to check out Thai Technology. Anyone that mentions this podcast or the Facebook show will receive three free months of service. T-I-E Technology. Check them out.